Good evening. The second Bible reading for tonight is One John,、um, chapter five, verse thirteen.、Um, it's on page one thousand two hundred and eighty-one.、Uh, and eighty-one.、Yeah. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confi- confidence we have in approaching God. That if we asking anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, even in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you, Penny. Now, friends,、uh, please keep your Bible at that passage.、Uh, open there.、Uh, feel free to turn around, just to greet each other, welcome each other, and I'll call you back in about twenty seconds. Friends, now we'd like you to think about this. If you were to go to your friend or your family, and you were to say to them, "I know the truth. I know the truth. I know that I have eternal life, and I know it so certainly that if I were to die tonight, I'll be in heaven with God. I know." That my prayers are always answered. In fact, I know God, and God knows me. Now, if you were to say that to your friends or family who are not yet believers, not Christians, what might they think about you? What might your friends or your family think about you to say such a thing? What arrogance! What pride! What presumptuousness! What haughtiness! I mean, how can anyone say? Any of those things with any certainty? How can anyone claim such a thing with any certainty? I mean, in the marketplace of our society, there are so many truths. You know, you have your truth. Whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. And so, to say what you say and to believe it as well, you know, what a big head you've got. 
to claim such a thing. But you know what? Aren't these the very things every Christian can claim? Aren't these the very things that every single Christian, every single believer in Jesus Christ can say, can profess, can believe, can proclaim and can know for sure? It sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I know the truth. I know I have eternal life. It sounds so arrogant, so presumptuous. But you see, it's only arrogant and proud if it's not true. Because if it is true, if these are the very promises of God to us, to those who belong to him, to Christians, if these are the promises of God to us, then it's not presumptuous to say, I know I have eternal life. Rather, presumptuousness lies in doubting his word. It lies in doubting his promises to us. It lies in not trusting God. And so you see, as Christians, as believers and followers of Jesus, there are certainties which we have. There are assurances which we have because of our faith in Christ. And they lie on the promises of God to us. And so what are these certainties that Christians can claim to have for sure? What are these assurances of our faith? Well, you see, towards the end of this letter, we're coming to the end of 1 John. John's encouraging the Christians. He's encouraging the church. These are the things you can believe. These are the things you can claim. These are the things you can know with complete certainty. And so what we see in our passage is a series of you know or we know statements. We know. And so we'll see these in turn. And so firstly, the first you know, the first certainty for Christians is that we have the certainty of having eternal life. We know we have eternal life. We can have a full assurance of that. And so what we see here in this first verse, verse 13, have a look. This verse serves as a summary of why John wrote this letter in the first place. You see, John's deep and genuine concern for the Christians and the church was that they will have complete confidence and assurance that their eternal life is certain because of Jesus Christ. He wants them to be grounded in their faith, in a faith which saves them, a faith which is on Jesus and in Jesus, to never move away from that faith and to know that assurance for sure. And so have a look at verse 13. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his purpose. And so let me ask you, how do you know that you have eternal life? Well, the answer is there. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, that is, if you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you believe that his death was for you, a sacrificial death, an atoning death. And so what happens when you do believe in the name of the Son of God? Well, what do we read in this verse? You know that you have eternal life. It's sort of a circular argument, isn't it? How, how do you know you have eternal life? If you believe in the name of the Son of the in the name of the Son of God. What happens when you believe? You have eternal life. And so John Stott, who was a great theologian, he said this The cross, you see, will never cease to be God's power for salvation to believers. It remains the case today, two thousand years ago when Jesus died. That was the focal point of the Christian faith. 
It remains the case today. We never move away from the cross. And so if even in a billion years' time and you were in heaven and you were asked by someone there, what right do you have to be here in heaven? What would your answer be? Well, your answer must remain the same as it is today. And that is, we are only in heaven. My right to be here is because of Jesus. Because I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, his sacrificial death, his death for me in my place. Christ remains always the object of our faith. You see, this truth does not change. It's not open to any change. It's not open to any interpretation. It's not open to any modernisation. It's not open to anything. And so this is the promise of God to Christians. You can have this certainty. You can have the assurance of salvation. You know you can have eternal life. You can know it for sure if you believe in the name of the Son of God. And so here we must never get it wrong. Okay? You can have that certainty if that is what you believe, not only in your mind but in your heart. We must never get this wrong, but people still do. It's quite sad, isn't it? People still get this wrong. During um, my two weeks off, several weeks ago, when I was annual, on annual leave, I visited a, a church, not this one, a, a church which shall remain nameless. That morning, the pastor preached, preached his sermon. He preached a sermon in which Jesus was only mentioned once. I can't actually remember what Jesus, what he said about Jesus and what Jesus was uh, said in connection to. But at the end of his sermon, I was sitting there at the back listening, he called for the people in the church to respond, to raise their hand if they believe. He ended up saying, in a sense, you were brought here today by those who love you, by family and friends. They love you so dearly and so believe. I was sitting there in the back thinking, what, a, what, what is this guy calling these people to believe in? Now, what were they called to believe in? There were many non-Christians. You say there was only one mention of Jesus, no mention of any sacrificial death, no mention of any resurrection, but yet he was calling the people to raise their hand if they believe. And so I was sitting there, listening, I was watching to see if any hands would be raised, and I was quite glad that no one raised their hand, because if they did, I would be thinking, what are you believing in? He did not say what you must believe in. But just say there was someone who raised their hand and said, I believe. Is there any certainty of salvation for that person? To hear a sermon like that, could there be any certainty at all? Well, according to this verse, there is no certainty. Unless your faith is grounded in the Son of God, there is no assurance of salvation, no certainty at all. But you see, you here today, you who do believe in the name of the Son of God, who bore the cross for you, bore your pain, the penalty, the punishment which we all deserve, if that is what you believe, then you can, in humility, because it's all Christ, you see, the work and the person of Christ is all Christ, you can say with humility, but yet complete assurance, I know I have eternal life. If I were to die tonight, I will be in heaven. That is the certainty that Christians can have. Now, the second one, the second assurance of faith, the second we know. We know that our prayers are answered. 
So when we ask God, we actually have full confidence that God is listening to us and God will answer our prayers. You see, this is one of the amazing privilege which we do not often understand. The Lord of all heaven and earth listens to us and answers our prayers. Now, if you think about that assurance, that certainty, you, you must think, if you're not a Christian, you must be thinking, who in their right mind could claim such an outrageous claim that God would listen to me? You know, there are not, there's so many different religious groups around the world and there's so many groups of people who pray, but there are not many who have any confidence at all that the one they're praying to uh, is listening to them. And that's why in some religions, I've seen this, they have to bribe the one they're praying to. They put plates of fruit or roast duck or incense to bribe so that their gods would listen to them. But you see, for the Christian, we can have this certainty that God listens and answers because we belong to him. We who believe in his son belong to him. He is our heavenly father and we are his children. And so I want you to think about how wonderful that is. Me, for me, for you, to pray to God, the God who flung the stars in the universe, who knows them all by name, who continues to sustain this universe by his power, would listen to me, would listen to you and answer our prayers. So have a look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. See, what an amazing privilege, an amazing honour that we Christians have, that God listens and answers our prayers. We can have that certainty. Now, this does not mean that you can pray for anything you like and expect that to happen. You can't pray like, Lord... Please give me a Ferrari, a blue one, you know, and to expect that to happen. Or, or Lord, please, by your power and your might, turn me into a spunk. Give me a beard like Owen and expect that to happen. You see, God listens to our prayers, God answers our prayers, but we're told here that it must be according to his will, to pray according to the will of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to pray according to the will of God? Does it mean our prayers can be short? Lord, I don't really know what to pray, but let your will be done. Amen. Let's go home. Does it mean that that's the extent of our prayer? Or does it mean instead, Lord, here are the options. This is what I'm thinking, Lord. The the list of options, take your pick, but let your will be done. But take your pick from my list. Is that what it means to pray according to the will of God? What does it mean? Well, it means that we don't get God to bend his will to our will. That, no, the other way around. No, that's right. Excuse <laughs> myself. We don't get God to bend his will to our will, but we bend our will towards his. Right? It's, it's like in the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. With sweats of blood, terrible agony and the dread of bearing the sins of the world, of facing the wrath of God. He was in deep agony, bearing judgment for wicked people. And so Jesus, how did he pray? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And the prayer of Jesus, 
praying in accordance to the will of God, that prayer was immediately answered. Because what happened that night? He was arrested. God's will for him was that he will bear the sins of the world and face God's judgment in place of wicked sinners. But now, what does it mean for us to pray according to the will of God? Well, what it means is that we pray according to the promises that God has made to us. To pray according to the will of God means we pray according to the promises he has made to us. And so prayers like these. Lord, the work of this world, the work of the kingdom is just so great. So much work to be done. So many lost souls. I see so many down my streets. I see hundreds at my workplace. I see thousands in this suburb. Lord, this work is just too big. But Lord, you promised. You promised in Matthew 9 that you are the Lord of the harvest. And so I pray to you as the Lord of the harvest, please raise up, raise up workers and send them out into your harvest field. You promised, Lord, this is your will. Well, Lord, I don't know why I have so many doubts in my mind now. My mind feels so troubled. But help me trust your promises. I mean, you promised, Lord. John 10, you promised. Jesus says that he gives eternal life, that I shall never perish, and no one can snatch me out of the hands of Jesus. This is your promise, Lord. I don't know I'm doubting, but this is your promise. And so, Lord, help me know the security I have in Christ. You promise, Lord. Well, Lord, I don't know why I'm experiencing this hardship in life, why it's so rough and tough at the moment, why my life is so unbearable. I do not know why. But, Lord, you you promise. Romans 8. You work for the good of those who love you. This is your promise to us. This is your promise to me. And so, Lord, help me trust you through this hardship. Help me trust you through this tough time. Help me to know that somehow through this, you are working for my good. This is your promise, Lord. Lord, I'm a new believer. I don't know much yet, but life doesn't seem to be going according to plan. It's tough and all these things are happening to me. But again, Lord, you promise. You promise in Hebrews 12. You promise that that I should endure hardship as discipline because you are treating me as your son, because you love me. This is your promise, Lord, and so help me to see my discipline, my hardship as discipline, and that that is for my good. Oh, Lord, I'm losing my house just thinking about the people in Iraq. I'm losing all my possessions. But Lord, you promised that you'll protect me. You'll provide for me. You'll give me strength. You'll give me courage. Lord, this is your promise. Help me get through this. You see, when we pray according to the will of God, there's nothing more powerful than that. These are God's promises to us. When we align our will to God's will, that is powerful. But you see, in order to know and to pray according to the will of God, it actually means knowing what the will of God is. And so for Christian, it means being saturated by the word of God, knowing the word of God, reading it and loving it, 
That's how I know what the will of God is so that I can pray according to the will of God. And so what this means for us tonight, we need to ask ourselves, is it my will that shapes my prayer or is it the will of God that shapes my prayer? Now John actually tells us in these next few verses a way in which, not the only way, but a way in which we can pray according to the will of God. And so have a look at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. That sounds a bit convoluted, a bit confusing there, right? So what is it about? We see what, it's, what John is telling us here is that out of our love and care for our fellow brothers and sisters, we pray for them. We pray for each other. We must do that. We're given to each other to care for each other, to love each other, to pray for one another. And so when you see a brother or a sister sin, you could and should do many things. Exhort them to change. Rebuke them gently. Correct them gently. Spur them onto the path of righteousness. But then you must also pray for them. We want them restored to a proper relationship and fellowship with God because we are concerned for their spiritual well-being. We love our brothers and sisters and so we pray. We pray when we see a brother or sister sin. Now, of course, this is not permission to use prayer. It's not an opportunity to use public prayer as a means of gossip. Right? It's, it's not like you, you see a brother sin and up front in church or growth groups are public. Lord, we want to pray for Bob. He's struggling with lust at the moment. Let it be known by the church that he's struggling with lust. And so, everyone, let us dress appropriately. It's not an opportunity to, to gossip about someone who is struggling. Or, or Lord, uh, we want to pray for, for Deb. She's, she's struggling with greed at the moment. You know, we saw her buy a new truck. We, we pray that you'll help her in her greed. It's not an opportunity to use prayer as gossip. We pray for someone who is struggling with sin in private, personally with God, because we love them. We want them restored. Now, what this also suggests is the flip side must also be the case. And that is, if I struggle with some sin, if you struggle with some sin, and you bring it before a brother or a sister in Christ, that person is to gently correct us. If I'm struggling with some sin and I bring it to a brother in Christ, he is to gently correct me, rebuke me, show me the ways of righteousness, Show me how much better it is to live God's way. Show me to love God more and to hate sin. But he must also pray for me because he cares for my spiritual well-being and the promise of God is that he will answer those prayers. That's the assurance we Christians have. Now what about this other bit in this verse about the sin that leads to death? What is that about? But the sin that leads to death is the blatant, overt, persistent rejection of Jesus as the Christ. 
as the Saviour. Just like early in 1 John chapter 2, the Antichrist who came out from us but now deny that Jesus is the Christ. That is the sin that leads to death because that is the rejection of the very one who can offer forgiveness. And so if Jesus is life, to reject him is to reject life. That is the sin that leads to death. That is the non-believer who rejects Jesus blatantly, overtly and persistently. But yet for the believer who sins, who falls into some sin, it's a sin that does not lead to death. And so for them, when we see, we pray. We pray for them because we love them. And so this is our second assurance as Christians. We pray and we know with certainty that God listens and answers our prayers. Now the third assurance of faith. The third we know. Look at verse 18 now. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now what a big statement that is. We know that all who are born of God will not sin, will not continue to sin. You see, new birth, as we saw last week, results in new behaviour, a radically new life that is so different to the world because now we belong to God. You see, Loving God, obeying God, means we hate sin. And so the Christian cannot persist in sin. They must hate it. Now this is not to suggest that all Christians are perfect. We know that is not true. Christians are not perfect. Christians must lead a life, not, not, not because they're sinless, but they must lead a life where they will sin less. They must sin less. John Stott, that great theologian, he said this, Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. The child of God and sin is incompatible. And so on this side of glory, for the Christian, for the believer, it it will always be a constant struggle against sin, against the pool of sin. And that's because as we grow in godliness, as we grow in God-likeness, as we grow to love God more, as we grow in purity, as we grow in righteousness and holiness, then what we'll discover is that more and more of our deeper sins get exposed. It's like the closer you come to the light, the more dirt you see on yourself. And so when that happens, we hate it still. We must change. We must hate sin and stop sinning. Now, what this does mean is that the life of a Christian must be radically different from all those around us. It has to be different. There must be a change from before being a Christian to after being a Christian. We are not sinless, but we must live a life that is sinning less. And so we can say with John Newton, the minister who wrote that, him amazing grace he said this he said i'm not the man i ought to be i'm not the man i wish to be and i'm not the man i hope to be but by the grace of god i'm not the man i used to be you see for a christian there's always progress we're always growing in godliness you cannot stay the same so a year from now you should be a more godly person you should be a person who loves God more. You should be a person who hates sin more. You should be sinning less. A year from today, 
And so this is the assurance we have, that the Christian, the one born of God, will sin less. Now the second bit of verse 18, have a look. We're given why we can do this, the reason why we can have this assurance. And so the second part of verse 18, the one who was born of God. This is talking about Jesus Christ. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, keeps the believer safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. You see, though we continue throughout our Christian life struggling with sin, feeling defeated and broken, we're actually told here we need not feel broken and defeated. And that's because God's very own son protects us. He looks after us. He will protect us from the temptations, from the lure, from the seduction of sin. And so the promise of God again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God promises this. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You see, when we face the lure and the seduction of sin, we need not think, I'm hopeless, I'm defeated, I cannot get myself out. I cannot stop sinning. I cannot stop this ongoing habitual sin. You see, we can't say that and we need not say that because of this promise. We Christians know. We know we can have this assurance that as we struggle with sin, we struggle with confidence, with assurance and not despair. And so think about that. If God is the Lord of the universe and his son the king protecting me, who can be against me? Not even the devil. And so we who are born of God do not sin, must not persist in sin. This is the third assurance. This is the third we know. What about the fourth? The fourth assurance of faith. The fourth we know. Verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You see, we know, we know with full confidence that we belong to God. We are his children. We are the heirs of heaven. We are no longer enslaved by the things of this world. The world will suck us in and draw us in, but it will never satisfy us. David Jackman, a, a, a theologian, he says this. This is the way of the world. The more you have, the more you want. The more you want, the less you are satisfied. That's the devil's way. You see, it will continue to entice us. But we know we don't belong to the world. We don't belong to the devil. We belong to God. That's the fourth. Now the fifth, the fifth assurance of faith that we have. In the end, we know the truth. We know God. We know Christ, the Saviour. We know ultimate reality. We know eternal life. That's where it comes to. And so verse 20. We know also the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, who can claim such a thing? Who in the world can claim such a boast to know the truth, to know God, to know Christ, to know eternal life? Who can have such confidence? Who can have such assurance? Well, it's the believer. 
the one who believes in the name of the Son of God. This is our confidence. This is your confidence if you believe. The assurance of our faith in Christ. Now finally, how do we make sure that we preserve this faith in Christ? How do we persevere in our faith? Well, John finally ends in this strange way but a fitting way. He ends with these six words in verse 21. Have a look. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. What an interesting way to end a letter. Keep yourselves from idols. Why? Why does he end that way? Why does he say that? Well, it's because we live in a world filled with idols. Idols that will try to gain our attention. Idols that will demand our allegiance. Idols that will receive our worship. Idols that will compete with God for our hearts. Idols which become our chief loves. And that's why the great reformer John Calvin, he says that our minds are a perpetual factory of idols. That's the condition of the human mind. That's the condition of the human heart. We turn to things that are not God and we make them gods. Be it wealth, be it security, be it relationship, be it career, be it sports, be it popularity, anything can become an idol when it takes the place of God. We live for them, we pursue them with our life, we love them more than God, we worship them, that's an idol. But in the end, they're counterfeit gods. They're fake. They will never satisfy. And so Timothy Keller, he puts it really well. Counterfeit gods, if you fail them, will never forgive you. And if you get them, will never satisfy you. Do you get that? If you fail your idol, they won't forgive you. If you get your idol, it will never satisfy you. And so, for example, if my job is my idol, that's the thing, thing I, I live for, I stand for. If being an accountant is my idol and I fail as an, an accountant, you know, I hate maths, I can't stand, I'm hopeless at it, my job's not going to forgive me. Rather, because I failed my idol, it will crush me. Or if I do, in fact, become an accountant and become, do well at, it, well at it, in the end I come to realise I'm just an accountant. It's actually quite depressing. I mean, is this all there is to life? I'm not, it can be anything there, but in the end, there's actually emptiness. There remains emptiness because it won't fulfil and it won't satisfy. And so John fittingly ends in this way. Guard your hearts against idols. You see, anything that takes the place of God, who, the God who has dis- disclosed himself in his son, it's all idolatry. And if you think about the assurances that we've been talking about, the five assurances that we've been looking at, if you turn your back on God and put your faith in these idols, what will that mean? It will mean that you've got nothing to be certain of, no assurances at all. And you're effectively saying to God, I'd rather put my trust, my love, my faith in these idols instead of you. And the consequence is that there is no eternal life. There is no knowledge of God. There is no knowledge of the truth. There is nothing at all. But yet if we pursue God, if he is the one we worship, Keller puts it this way, the living God who revealed himself on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfil you and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. 
And St. John ends, do not prize anything above God. That is an idol. Guard your hearts from idols. And so there lies the preservation of our faith. We persevere in believing by guarding our hearts from idols. We have all those assurances of the Christian faith. And so now, if we think about these claims, I started with these claims and I'll end with them. I know that I have eternal life. I know that my prayers are answered by the almighty God. I know that my life is radically different because I hate sin and I love God. I know that I belong to God. I'm a child of God. I know the truth. I know God. He knows me. I know his son, my saviour and my Lord. Now you look at those claims and you can think, what arrogance, what presumptuousness, what pride, what a big head I have. Deluded and a madman, a lunatic. You can understand why people might think that way to say, you know the truth. To say, I know the truth. I mean, how can anyone make such a massive claim? In fact, if you think about these claims we looked at tonight, there's actually nothing, that any, nothing in the world that's any bigger than these claims. It's a claim to know God, to know the truth. What gets bigger than that? But you see, this is the very claims. These are the very claims that you who believe and me who do believe have the assurance of our faith. Now, if you think about this, having this assurance means that I can deal with anything that comes my way in life. Whatever comes my way, the stresses that come my way, the uncertainties that come my way, the loneliness, the heartache, the pain, the sadness, the distress, the anguish that come my way, in a sense, I can deal with it because I am short of where I stand. I'm sure that I know God. I know eternal life. You see, these are not the claims of some lunatic, but yet these are the claims of every single believer in Jesus Christ. And so you must ask yourself tonight, do you believe this? If you do, all that is yours. If you don't, then you must consider what do you have? What certainty do you have? And so now let's turn to God in prayer. And let me encourage you, if you are considering Christ, to please speak to someone, speak to me, who would love to share you this great news of Jesus, that you might have these assurances as well. But let us now end, and I'm going to pray a prayer that I heard from Don Carson, a prayer for those he ministered to, and we're going to make this our prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're not strong enough or wise enough or moral enough or good enough or insightful enough to understand the nature and the barrage of temptations that come our way, still less to confront them with victory. And so we pray that you pour out your blessing upon us, pour out your spirit upon us to make us strong, give us enough of tears to be broken and empathetic and compassionate, give us enough of struggle like a hardy plant in the north wind. We put down deep roots that will make us sturdy and strong. Give us enough joy so that we see where we are heading and so we will cry with the church of every generation, O come, Lord Jesus, come. Give us enough pain that your peace, when it comes to us, will be like a wonderful balm and we will remember something 
of the pains of him who went to the cross on our behalf. But above all, give us perseverance, faith, stability, endurance, quiet confidence in the living God for the joy of the Lord is our strength and wisdom enough to detect the idols that are all around us and stamina and courage to remember that it is written, keep yourself from idols. And so we pray that you'll raise from this number men and women who will hate nothing more than sin, who will love no more, no one more than your dear son, and who will cherish nothing more than the gospel. And grant that your name and power and presence may be at work in them, in all of us, to will and to do your good pleasure. Bring us all in due course into the fullness of the, of the consummated kingdom and throughout our lives bearing fruit in righteousness and conversions and integrity of life and a spiritual mind. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.